drops. Morpheus is fighting Neo. Hello, dudes, dudettes, duders, and everyone in between, and welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I am and can only be your host, Jesse Kester. But as per usual, I am not alone. In fact, I'm the least alone I've ever been on this show. I am joined by not but one, but two special guests. So, without further ado, I would like to introduce first the one, the only, the singular, the illustrious David Diamond. And the one, the only, the singular, the illustrious... David Weissman. David and David, guys, you make it so easy for me. Is it okay if I stick with first names for this? Go for it. Awesome. Thank you. Welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having us. Thank you for coming on by. I really do appreciate it. And uh, thank you guys more than anything for having written uh, Bulletproof, available on Mike Weezy Productions. And we're going to get into Bulletproof. We're going to get into writing for the screen. We're going to get into, obviously, revising writing for the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to probably get into Pennsylvania Living. We're going to get into definitely, definitely uh, working as a team. Great. Because this is an ingredient we've never had on the show before. And thank you for indulging us and having us both at the same time. I liked when you emailed me and you, I said I'd prefer to do one by one. And you said if there's a compelling, I forget who said it, but if there's a compelling reason to do that, we'll do it. And I had no compelling reason whatsoever. So well played, sirs. Before we get into any of that, what I would like, nay love to do, is something we call five and five and you're gonna have split time on this usually each it's uh, five questions you have one minute to answer each question normally each guest gets a minute you're getting 30 and 30 to do this one so which is gonna be really challenging because the fifth question is a two-parter so you're gonna really you're gonna have 15 oh seconds each to answer a we're, question. we're pretty good at this okay we, right. we've played before that's that's the thing is it, I, i'm very excited to see how this goes because you said you were very clear we go as a team like this is a package deal so right. when you suggested having us do this separately you didn't see the panic on our side oh okay okay <laughs> <laughs> all is right with the world you ready for five and five as ready as we'll ever go be. for it okay you're gonna get beeps to let you know when time is up uh those are your friend not your enemy this is going to instagram so a minute is the limit anyway can't I did not changed. know that. All right, here we go. Let's get it loud. There we go. Loud enough? Sure. Yeah. Question number one. Where did you grow up and how did that inform your adulthood? Oh, my. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. How did it inform my adulthood? I consider myself a Philadelphian even now, even though uh, I've lived in Los Angeles for about 30 years. So uh, absolutely has shaped me... Wow, that's a tough question, Jess. That's that's not a bulletproof question. <laughs> oh, it's a bulletproof question. Wait, is it my answer? answer? The answer. Is... Where am I in all of this? How do yeah. I know my thirty seconds is twenty? Uh, oh, twenty nine oh. seconds. Oh, oh. I, now, he took some of my time. All right, I grew up in. Uh, was born in Trenton, New Jersey. Moved to Yardley, Pennsylvania. Um, when I when, when I was twelve years old, we moved to the suburbs. Growing up in the suburbs definitely informed everything of uh, about me because uh that's where i fell in love with the movies and would you fall in oh, i'd love to know more but time is up time is up question number two you guys are doing fine what is the must engage media the movie the book the album that opened up your brain to the secrets of the universe let's start with david wow uh well 
since it's since we're we're doing it as a pair, uh, it's got to be CSNY Deja Vu, I guess. As an album, yeah, yeah, okay. that was the album that unlocked much for me. Okay, as an early uh, uh, teen. Yeah, uh, for sure. Music, Neil Young. I think uh, for movies, probably The Graduate unlocked an enormous amount as a teenager. Uh, And basically anything that was playing on television when uh, we should have been doing homework. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's all we did together is watch TV. Yeah. 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 That's how it goes back. Was it high school when you started? I'd love to know more. (laughs) (laughs) But there's no time. (laughs) Thanks for being with us here on question number three. What is the greatest source of joy in your life? Uh, My family, Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And uh, my partnership, uh, a very close second. Wow. David Weissman, by the way. I was going to put my partnership first and my family second. But now, because he said that, I'm going with my family first, partnerships. No, I would do this. I would say the same exact thing. Uh, I take enormous joy and pleasure in being with my wife and my children. Awesome. Awesome. And what's the shape of your family? Uh, The shape of my family is a, a pentagon. We are five. <laughs> oh, I took the I, question I literally. They're a military family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wife, three kids. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, you got 10 seconds. Is there anything else uh, that we take joy in? Yeah. I, I still take, I, I'm trying to take more and more joy in the movies again. I'm trying to fall in love with the movies again. That, so. we're going to come back to that. Okay. Definitely. Because that's, I've been. Li- let me pause that for a minute. I have lately been thinking, like, do I even like movies? This it, is uh, this is worthy of of uh, a discussion, not a thirty second. Yeah, we're gonna response. save that for later because sure. that is a big one. Yeah. Question number four: What gets under your skin? Oh, traffic, pettiness, and uh, pe- uh, pettiness. Yeah, self centeredness. That's those are those are bad ones. Um, I don't love a lot of the things that are happening in our country with inequality that gets under my skin. I don't like that. Um, I don't like people that don't are dog owners and don't pick up their dog poop. That are, that I don't really even bothers understand me. that. Like what? I it, why? I think their justification for it is it's natural. It's that's what happens in nature. Nobody, no animals Nothing are picking is up their dog. Here. This is a city. But the, I Nothing agree. Is natural. I agree. And then people who do it on the sidewalk, that's even worse. No, no, I'm totally right there with Thank you. you. And everything you said really grinds my gears too. <laughs> I'm not playing favorites on under the skin. You got one more question. And that final two part of question is, I'm going to make this difficult by waiting for the beep to start. What's the best advice you've received and what advice do you want to put out into the universe? The best advice we ever received as a writing partnership, I think, is don't send this out. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, coincidentally, it's probably the best advice we could give. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's one of the central points of our book is you don't have that many shots at exposing your material to people who can help you. Don't waste it with material that isn't ready. Beautiful. And I, it's very hard because it's so exciting when you've got that draft. Like of course. That is so months true. Of work All you course. Is to get yeah. it out there in the world. And you think it's brilliant. Yep. And yeah. what have you got for the... 
you know, I, I, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I think Come uh, on. That, that's the answer. This, this is why we're uh, one writer. That, two people. Yeah. You, that was the one I was worried most about, and you smashed the fifth two-part question, split okay. between two people, and that's it. That's five and five. We are done. Do you want the celebration music or not? Sure. Yeah. Nobody do it. has turned down the celebration nah. music. Just so you know. <laughs> that's it. That's that. right. <laughs> That's music. <laughs> Sounded like an air horn. <laughs> it, it, well, uh, you got me. Let's talk about let's um, let's do the elevator pitch for Bulletproof. So people know where this conversation is going to be headed. Then let's back it up to Philadelphia. Sure. Uh, or Trenton, was it? And yes. then let's work our way back yes. to Bulletproof. Okay. So how would you pitch this book? Uh, Bulletproof is a screenwriting companion that views the entire process of writing a script, uh, both from the perspective of the writer telling his or her story, uh, and also through the additional lens of all of the creative and financial stakeholders who have to sign on to a project in order for it to sell and get made. So that means managers, agents, producers, directors, actors, studio executives, financiers, everybody. How are they going to read your script? And how are you going to write something bulletproof that gets through that yeah, that, that maze. Process, yeah, yes. Um, the one thing I, there was one thing that really jumped out at me early on in the book, and I wanted to bring that up, and then we'll go back to Philadelphia, and then we'll get into the book. And that is uh, something something that I don't think is often imparted on people who dream of Los Angeles. You guys touched on something really, really, really valuable. Is uh, of course, of course, everybody in this town wants to hear a great pitch. Everybody wants to lean into a pitch. Everybody wants your thing to be amazing. But the reality is everybody's job here is to say no. Mm-hmm. Like that's just what the job is, is to say no. So we get in the habit of saying no to people and we get in the habit of hearing no. And this book is really about how to how to penetrate that no. Like what that tiny little sliver of window is that will avoid no's. And I really liked that you framed it like that, that, that that's their job. That's what they do is separate the chaff. Well, anytime anyone says yes, they're really putting their reputation on the line. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So think about what that would mean for you in your life to put your reputation on the line. Would you do it for something that you didn't think was worthy? You wouldn't do it just because someone asked you to or because someone was related to somebody you know. You would only do it if you actually had some conviction about it. And it is a reputation-based industry. Correct. That's that's the coin of the realm yeah. is is reputation over here. Uh, so let's go back to Philadelphia. How did you guys end up becoming friends in the first place? Philadelphia. We went to high school together. Which one? Uh, Akiba Hebrew Academy on okay. the main line, Marion, Pennsylvania. That tells you a lot about us right there. It does, actually. Um, we were best friends at Akiba, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we then went our separate ways for our college, but always very much in touch with each other and visiting each other, and then uh, came back together after college. Um, and what were you studying? What was, the, what was the college trajectory? Was it Hollywood bound or? So uh, we won't have the same answer on That's that okay. exactly. <laughs> um, I, I was maybe more, a little bit more in the traditional Hollywood bound trajectory. Mm-hmm. I went to NYU uh, and was in the liberal arts college and then uh, realized about halfway through 
that I was much more interested in what my friends were studying than I was and what I was studying. And most of my friends were studying acting or directing. Mm-hmm. And uh, What did you go there for in the first place? Uh, yeah, I went there because it was the type of school I was interested in going to. Mm-hmm. And it was in New York and I wanted to be in New York, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I was 17 when I made that decision. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I did... We loved the movies. We always loved the movies. Um, and uh, when I saw that there were people who were actually studying that in college, mm-hmm. that was intoxicating to me. So uh, it was it was actually probably the most fortuitous decision for the two of us that was that has ever made because had you gone somewhere else, it's it's unlikely we ever would have ended up here because I wasn't on that on that path at all. We never would have ended up here. Yeah, it never would have happened. Yeah, it's it's really only because it, it was like a social accident that we ended up here. I mean, I just fell in with a bunch of people who uh, I felt like I had sort of found my tribe mm-hmm. socially in school, and it took two years for that to happen. It was difficult, but once it happened, uh, it changed my life. So. Uh, I transferred into the School of the Arts. I majored in cinema studies and uh, and got an internship in my senior year. And that kind of led to my Where did you intern? Here. What was the I the interned at a small TV production company that was based in New York. It was called the Paul Lucier Company. Paul Lucier, still a friend. Um, and uh, he was produced, developing and producing movies for television, which was a thing mm-hmm. um, in the late 80s that they did. They made these two-hour movies for ABC and NBC and CBS. Mm-hmm. Is this pre-Fox? I think it was pre... Is it pre-Fox? I think so. I don't well, it was right around that right time. Around that time. Started, right around that time. Right, right. And uh, I was hired to read scripts and then to be an assistant, and then uh, my boss, Paul Lucier, sold a movie and was going to be producing it out here in L.A. I was graduating. A bunch of my friends were moving out here. And I thought this could be an opportunity to get out there and have a job. And uh, I asked him if he'd bring me out. And he did. And uh, so I started working as an assistant out here and then sort of graduated from there to, to working in feature development uh, and that was the the uh, the job that made me realize actually that I wanted to be a screenwriter. Um, and uh, Dave, up to that point, was on a very different path, but our paths yes. began to converge. At this what point. was that path? My my path. I moved overseas for two years. I lived in Israel. I studied there. I studied studying Chinese there, um, and then moved back to this country got my undergraduate degree in Chinese studies at University of Michigan, and then uh, went to graduate school studying Chinese history at Wisconsin, and then uh, finally at Brown University. What was the impetus? Just the general curiosity of Chinese culture? You know, it's interesting. It's a funny story because uh, I was a little bit of a, yeah, you know, I I would not say I was a stoner, but I was, you know, I was a little bit of a hippie-ish type kid. And um, in in University in Israel is is much more sort of professional. uh, And language courses start at 7 a.m. I couldn't wake up at 7 a.m. There was one language course that started at 10 a.m. And that Mm -hmm. was Chinese because the teacher was 167 years old. And couldn't get up that early, and I fell in love with it. I just, you know, I started studying the language, 
fell in love with the language, fell in love with the teacher. She was a wonderful teacher. Congratulations on being the only person on planet Earth who studied Chinese because they were lazy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's a great insight because the truth is, you're right. It is so hard. Mm-hmm. And of course, the joke was after I studied it in, in undergrad and grad school for almost eight years and uh, and then left to come out here uh, um, and, and join up with Dave and... I forgot the language on the drive out here, essentially. Yep, 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 yep. Because it's so intensive. Uh, So, yes. So, so in my journey, um, when I was in grad school at Wisconsin, that's when Dave had decided to um, sort of go away from the producer track and start writing. He moved out to Madison for a semester, and we lived together, and he was writing a script. I was writing my master's thesis. And we had an idea to write something together, and that's when we started writing together. And then over the next uh, three or four years, uh, we wrote a lot of stuff in summers together, a lot of stuff separately, but then ultimately, a number of years later, decided uh, if we're going to make a go of this, I would have to move out to L.A., and we'd have to actually become partners. Yeah. I was just going to you know, there was an interesting lesson that I don't know if we uh, recognized at the time, but it was one of the early and most important lessons of the partnership because we were writing separately and we were writing together. Mm -hmm. The stuff that we were writing together was getting a better response than what we were writing separately. So we made this joint decision to pursue this thing together. and that required a certain, uh, you know, submission of ego yep. to the greater project and to the joint effort over the individual effort. And after that, we we kind of put that behind us. And uh, that was a very long time ago. And uh, everything since then, you know, no matter whose idea it is or, or no matter what, uh, everything is really about the joint effort. How much of that had to be verbalized and how much of that was instinctual? The the uh, putting back of the ego and the you both work for the script, not for yourselves. You know, uh, there were a couple probably instances where there were discussions about it. But I think pretty early on, we realized that the project would only work if the ego was put to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most partnerships will w- essentially unfold the same way. Uh, if they every, last. If they last. It's 50-50. And we know that not every project, I've contributed 50, he's contributed 50%. It yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the project is a 50-50 project. And, and you know, if you don't do it that way, I think um, that's a context where there can be a lot of issues that come up. If you decide to do it that way, it's actually super simple. Um, you know, the numbers don't adjust no matter what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, and we... Uh, you know, we, we, we've always had the kind of friendship where we could talk about pretty much anything and there was no issue that couldn't be overcome because one of our earliest experiences as friends was being in love with the same girl. And so that negotiating that actually required us to create a foundation of mutual trust and openness. Was and she a student at the school? Yeah, yeah, she, yeah she was, yeah. was either, she went to high school. Did you get with her? 
this that was it was her girl it was your girlfriend in eighth seventh grade eighth grade and twelfth grade yeah, we were we were very young yeah, we were. so you were you were trying to muscle in if it was his girlfriend and they had broken up oh okay. yeah okay, broken so up. she was fair game yes. then and so I don't think I you would I'm just ever trying say to stir the pot <laughs> I did I've never muscled in on anything muscle is not part of my vocabulary so no but I do think that um I do think that that had a, a very profound effect on our partnership. Um, and uh, actually, in the context of the book, which we'll talk about a little yeah. bit later, uh, where the book started was much more of a um, portrait of our partnership and only later really became um, the book that it is the book today. That it is today. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever mined that love triangle for like that's a, you know, Americana yeah. Norman Rockwell story? The first idea we ever had for writing a screenplay was based on it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But then we never wrote it. Here's a question. Now, this is not a hard and fast number, but my f- general feeling is that as for when a, when a writer's working alone, uh, it's usually like it's the 10th script that isn't abysmal. It's, it takes like right. 10 goes around this rodeo before you start writing something that's really has, has structural integrity, has personality, has well-developed characters. How long was it before you started uh, writing as individuals in a way that was not just readable for your own fun of reading it, but something that you could share with other people and they'd say it was cool? And then as a team, did it take more time, you feel, or less time when you're working in a partnership to get on that really that, that script that really crackles? I, I think the 10 is probably a, a reasonable number, give okay, or so take. I'm not, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, There's some people who are some really people talented. Faster, right. We probably like, worked on both individually and together, 10 scripts yeah. before um, before we, we had one that was actually got us got us our agent. It's way harder than people think to write a screenplay. It's like way harder. Correct. Writing, so. a, finishing a screenplay, <laughs> yes. I just need validation. It is, it is, it's, it's very difficult and harder because it's deceptively hard. Uh, How do you people, mean by that? Because people look at a screenplay, and if you count the number of words in a screenplay, it's a tenth as, as many as in a novel. But uh, and and the formatting, I think, makes it seem like oh, I just it's just not have that many to, words on a page. Yeah, yeah, yeah I just yeah, have to write some fast. dialogue. Yeah. Just have to write what people say. I know what people say. I talk all the time, and I watch five movies a week. Yeah. So I know I, I got this one. This I is think, one of the point. Yeah. One of the points we make in the book is that uh, writing a screenplay is actually not that hard. Writing a movie is tremendously difficult. Yes, and yes, yes. You do that. A make critical that distinction. distinction. Yeah, I mean, anyone who buys a screenwriting program and starts plugging in dialogue and action can get to page 100 and reasonably say they've written a screenplay. Yes, yes. But who's going to read that and what are they going to do with it? We're going to get to that book. Sure. We are so going to get to that book because I do want to be talking about this. Uh, I don't mean to be over eager. No, 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 no. So do you, do you drive out here together or what? how do you get to L.A.? What's that trajectory? Oh, so I moved I moved out right after college. Yes. Uh, so I was already... Did you drive here? Or have you done the cross-country drive ever? I've done the cross-country drive a few times. I flew okay. out here, bought a car out here. That was okay. the first car I ever owned. What, what, what was it? That was an 81 Toyota Corolla. It had 66,000 miles on it. And mm-hmm. it served me well How until we sold our first did it, script. Did it break 200,000? 
Uh, I never got to 200,000 okay. because, uh, you know, I was a writer and I never left the house. <laughs> so I didn't, I don't know that I put that many miles on it, but uh, it got me through until we sold our first script. How long did that take to sell the first one? It took us, uh, I moved out in um, January of 1992 and we sold our first spec screenplay in April of 1994. So, so that's two years, years and three months. We'd okay. had a, a couple, uh, we, we'd had a low budget movie mm-hmm. made that we were hired to write in 1993. Okay. Uh, and then Dave had a low budget movie that he had sold also in 1993, this is something he'd written separately for me, um, but really it was two, a little over two years before we started. Not enough something. to buy a new car until 94. Yeah. Let's jump in there for a minute, because I think the general assumption when we talk about screenwriting is that um, we're talking about your magnum opus, but uh, they don't all have to be great scripts. They can be a horror script that you crank out in a couple of months that you wrote on request from a, a horror production company who's looking for some cheap labor. Like, can we talk about that field of yes. work for a minute? Yeah. That is a, uh, I mean, it was a great experience for mm-hmm. us because uh, it was actually a company that made a ton of movies. Um, it was this company, Cinetel, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they had, Dave had written a low budget movie um, that they were making, and they liked us, and they had a comedy that was a sequel to this movie called Dream a Little Dream, mm-hmm. and uh, they said, do you guys want to write this? We have a treatment, and we said, sure. I think they paid us $2,500 each. I think that was it, yeah, $25,000. And, um, but the, the, what was great about it was, A, it, it gave us some experience into what a professional career might look like, even mm-hmm. though, you know, it was not a, t- a ton of money. But even more than that is um, they let us write ourselves into the movie in non-speaking roles because uh, they need actually we needed it to fill about 17 different plot holes. We needed these guys, Roy and Roy, the affable but ignorant handyman. And so we got to be in the movie and be on set and um, and that was fun and actually taught us a lot about what it means to have have a career in film. So is this available on iTunes or anywhere? Oh, yeah. Dream a little dream part two. It's with uh, Corey Feldman, Corey Haim to the two Corey's. Yep. And And others. And others, uh, yeah, and uh, not only is it available, we're in it. We've been on the Jumbotron in Times Square. Awesome. Uh, and uh, the deal was, as I said, we could be in any scene, but we couldn't say a word. Mm-hmm. So, because they didn't want to pay us, and they yep, didn't want to yep, pay yep, us yep, residuals. Yep. yep. So, uh, so yeah, so you can you can see it, and uh, it's terrible. But um, you know, by the way, gonna, yes, f- funny story there. They uh, they had both Corys, but they couldn't afford both Corys for the full three week shoot. They could only afford one Corey for three weeks mm-hmm. and the other Corey for one week. They had four weeks of Corey. They had enough they had money four for four weeks, weeks of Corey. Corey. So was which was it? Haim was the the discount Corey or the Corey? It was the one who they could afford to insure. So that ended up being Corey. Uh, Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman was the one they could insure for three weeks. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So Corey Haim was only in the movie for was only shooting for right. one. We week. had to write him in jail. He had to be for in most jail. Of the one script. location. Yeah. Wow. 
<laughs> yeah. So there were some creative constraints. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah that yeah. you're dealing with. Yeah, and that's that's what I want to hear about when I say like there's the magnum opus, and then there's just the reality of doing the right. low budget work. That is we totally never turn different. anything down, uh, and 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 wouldn't turn something down. I don't, I don't think anyone should. You know, listen, this is it's this is a craft. What we yeah. do, uh, it's 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 not always high art, and the experience of actually making a film is so important and um, and was important to us. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have turned it down. Of course, we. Didn't. You're saying we wouldn't have turned it down because of the budget. Because yeah, of because of what right. they were paying us. Yeah, we've turned plenty of things down, but yeah, not because yeah, yeah. of not because of right. Right, we, and and that and this was in our this was in our, a period of time where we were really learning. It was this was our apprenticeship. Right. So and then we definitely would not have turned anything down. No, right, and nobody turns down their first twenty five. Right. Hundred dollars, exactly. like why? In, I in never made twenty five hundred dollars doing anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. You just you, when somebody says, "Will you do this for two thousand five hundred dollars?" Yeah, I'll yeah, probably, absolutely. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, so then let's get back to that magnum opus. The uh, eighty three. You did the the low budget Corey's film. Right. Ninety three. Ninety three. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so then 94, you were finishing your first partnership script. And this, I imagine, would have been one of like more artistic. Like, this is what we want to write. We're writing for us. Or was that another commission? It wasn't it was hardly artistic. It was okay. neither. <laughs> but it, it was, was a comedy and it was what we wanted to do. We wanted to write comedy and it was an idea of ours. Which was which one was this? This was the Wiz Kid, and, and oh, okay, that's in the book. Yeah. That is in the book. Yeah. The story is in the book, um, and we put it in the book because it seemed like a valuable anecdote to include uh, for people to read about what it looks like to break in, what that break-in yeah, script yeah. is, and the situation. And and it, not only just a valuable anecdote, it was the turning point that allowed us to ultimately have a career. Also, um, yeah, the story goes that you know we we. We had written a script called People of Girth. It was sort of a, a, a comedy. It was a little out there. It was a little indie. And uh, eventually it got to an agent who was interested in the writing, but said to us, look, I don't think I can sell this. I could probably set you up on some meetings, mm-hmm. but uh, and maybe and maybe you come up with an idea. Maybe you, you get paid Writer's Guild minimum to, to write that idea. It's like, that's not, I don't think that's the way for you guys to break in. I think you guys need to write a big spec. This was in a time when you can sell a spec mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, give me some ideas and, and, and write that. He didn't sign us, but he was interested in us. Mm-hmm. So of course we, the next day called him and said, we've got 20 ideas. Uh, we meet with him. We pitch him 20 ideas. He chooses one, uh, about this, um, 13 year old kid who magically becomes a genius. This was a time when, you know, Macaulay Culkin was the biggest star in the world. These movies, fantasy fulfillment movies for, for kids, starring kids were, 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 were doing some business and we went away and, and we wrote a draft of this movie and we did it wrong. Uh, and, um, we gave it to him. He gave us notes. He wasn't excited about it, but he gave us notes. We did the notes. We gave it to him again and, uh, we did it wrong. And he said, guys, maybe this isn't the one. And that was, was the, the hardest what thing. What was the big wrong ingredient? What? Tone. We, we, we just had, we wrote it, we wrote it as a almost, 
with a thriller component to it and it was it was just it wanted to be a comedy and and he recognized that he didn't know how to how to write the ship he just knew it was wrong and he said maybe this isn't the one and we knew or at least we believed this was the one mm-hmm. uh we drove to vegas as 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 we always did when we were in a sort of a creative pickle and uh at the fashion show mall we sat down at a table and we asked ourselves what we what was at the time seemed like a really simple question this feels to us like sort of a Disney movie. Uh, how would Disney do this movie? Yep, yep, yep. And that question unlocked for us really the essence of what became uh, the bulletproof approach, which is you can't just see something through the lens of your own through your own lens. As uh, you have to see something through the lens of how people down the line are going to look at this. And so if Disney ultimately makes this movie and markets this movie, what would they do? What would it look like? Once we answered that question, very quickly we knew how to do that movie the right way, how to do that that idea the right way. I would say it took us about 2 weeks to write it. We sent a postcard to this agent who hadn't yet signed us, but he was, you know, on board to read it we sent him the script and i think two weeks later he sold it that's awesome yeah that's so have you written as a as a partnership have you written any for yourself like that might have put you very much in the habit like once you start getting money for the things you do it's very easy to form habits and do those things for money like your brain is just like i guess that's what we do that's the right way to do it so let's just keep doing that well i mean i would say passion project yeah the the answer is the short answer is yes Okay. At the same time, at the same time, our sensibility, our sort of joint sensibility is formed very much by commercial Hollywood movies. That's what mm-hmm. we grew up uh, watching together. That's what we fell in love with. Underdog comedies, things like that. Mm-hmm. Comedies of the 1980s and non-comedies, you know, movies, star-driven movies of the 1980s. So for us to... to try to write within the studio system is not uh, an artistic or creative compromise. That's yeah, like yeah. actually what we like. So we were very happy to learn the lesson and be able to sort of unlock some of the mm-hmm. secrets yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that uh, that would allow us to do this. At the same time, we're both drawn to other things that are maybe less commercial, especially now that uh, the scope of what Hollywood studios will make has so narrowed. Uh, there are certain things that we're interested in that we just know going in, no studio is going to make this movie. It doesn't stop us from writing it. And again, this mm-hmm. is a point that we make in the book. The point is not to necessarily write what will be a studio movie or a movie that a specific studio will make. The point is to understand who will make the movie, yeah. no matter who it is. You know, is this an indie movie? Is it a streaming movie? Is it a studio movie? How does this get done? And uh, once you can answer that question, who do you see doing this? How do you see them doing this? That can help you guide how you write that movie. And I didn't mean it as an us versus them approach to the, you know, the the f- industry fat cats who yeah. are holding the purse strings so tight. I just mean, like, when you've got that list of 20 that you're going to your agent, there are some that you know are going to be more commercial and more viable. And there's some that are kind of weird and off the map. And, and might th- be- this was always a, f- a feature of our partnership, which was <laughs> that um, we had different interests 
in in movies. Uh, although there was a big area of intersection, there if you look at the Venn diagram, you know there mm-hmm. were there were places on the other end, and we were always very generous with each other that we would work on things together that each of us maybe wouldn't have worked on if we were just working on our own. Yeah, and. Um, we, for instance, we optioned a, a book, um, a memoir by Noah Adams about called Piano Lessons, where uh, he talked about learning how to play the piano late in life. We optioned it on our own. We wrote an original sc- a script, uh, a script about it, and then we wrote uh, a script for Warner Brothers um, with that. And that was an unusual and very, um, very different sort of project. And still one of our favorites. That was a yeah. long time ago that we did that, but still mm-hmm. one of our favorite. Uh, and did that a number of times in our career. So uh, I think your question is 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 a good one. You, you you know, even when you're looking at the process of how your movie is going to get made, you have to be inspired by your own material. Oh yeah, because you're going to be spending yeah. a lot of time. Exactly. With exactly. The, the other aspect of your question that I think is. Uh, you know, we had these 20 ideas. The truth is, at the time, we could not have told you which of these are harebrained ideas and which of these are commercial ideas. We, we really yeah. didn't know. And to be honest, sometimes we still don't know because, <laughs> you know, we know each other so long and there's a certain part of us that kind of reverts back to who we were when we were 15 years old and yep, we were together. Yep, yep. We come up with an idea. It makes us laugh and we think, Wait till the world sees this idea. This is mm-hmm. going to be hilarious. This is going to be great. And then you tell someone and they kind of look at you like you're you're out of your mind. And that is the value of collaboration. That's why it's so important to get out of your own head and have people around you you can talk to and share ideas with and and you know get set straight from. Why Vegas for resetting the brain? Is it just because this was like a different time? It was, yeah. This was a different time okay. in Vegas. You know, Vegas was a place. It was a grittier place back in the early '90s. I don't know if any, except for Caesars. I mean, what if, what hotels from that time are still around? On uh, the Strip. I don't know. The Flamingo Hilton, maybe. I don't know. There are yeah. very few. The point. The point for, for us, what Vegas was, was it was a throwback to an earlier era that we always looked to. The mm-hmm. you know the. Um, the Rat Pack era, yeah, yeah and you yeah. could get and a hotel room for nine ninety nine a night. Yep, yep it was yep, cheap yep, yep. With, with a free all you can eat buffet. And it is, it's outside of town. It's not that far exactly. outside of town. And, and it's another dimension up, outside of town. If you grew up where you know where we did, Vegas mm-hmm. was like I was like going to a foreign country. Yep, yep, you know? yep I mean, yep, you're yep. really in the desert. Yep, we grew up in you know in Philadelphia and in the suburbs of Philadelphia, so it really was kind of exotic and exciting. Yeah. It had and it had some history in our partnership. The first time I ever came out uh, after Dave had had moved here, uh, this was five years before I actually officially moved out. We drove to Vegas. Um, it was just something that uh, we did that we loved to do. We didn't. We weren't huge gamblers. We didn't have any money to gamble. Yeah, our rule um, at the time was we only gambled the change in our pockets. Yeah, that was. How it. long would it last? Not long. You know, if you played video poker, you could you could make it last a while. But, did you ever um, win? I mean, did you ever do like blackjack and try to learn the game and anything? Yes, I, I remember. I remember one drive out uh, when I was driving back after after visiting you or being here. I think I was here for a few months, and uh, I actually the first time I went to Vegas played blackjack and won. I think I walked away with like fifty bucks, and I was thinking uh, the entire way on the drive back I could do this professionally. 
Mm-hmm. I, I found I, I discovered the secret. Uh, Did you try again and get washed? The yeah, next of course. Time? Yeah, <laughs> of course, because you know who who can really do that? Uh, but it was it was definitely a place for us that just was a change of scenery, and that's so important for writers. I think. Yeah. You know, you really do have to uh, change your scenery, change your focus, change something. I mean, inspiration is hard. You can't make it come, but you can create circumstances where you make it easier to come, and one of them is just a change of scenery. Now there's there's two things and I'm there, there's like two, there's two things half of writing is uh, the the habitual make yourself do it for whatever however many hours a day you have to do it and then the other side of it is the uh, don't be habitual make sure you're putting new ideas into your brain that you haven't seen before so what's your uh, what's your habitual like what's your what's your uh, on the clock when do you punch in punch out what's that routine like for y'all uh, we're very habitual. Okay. Uh, I mean, we're both family guys and, uh, we basically work bankers hours. I mean, okay. you know, I mean, our kids are getting older now, so we don't have to do this as much, but, uh, basically we drop our kids off at school. We go to the office, we work through the day, then, you know, we leave and get home in time for dinner and, okay. uh, that's it. Monday through Friday, not on weekends. Because it's, like it's a job. You, yeah, it's, it's a, a job. job. And you, you see, I mean, how much it's changed over the course of our career. Because when we originally started, we were like a factory. Uh, we were young and in our 20s. Uh, I wrote all night. He wrote all day. And somebody was always writing. Yeah. And uh, it was it was efficient in a certain sense because 24 hours a day there was something going on. But it wouldn't accommodate our lives. Uh, mm-hmm. It did at the time, but but our future lives. So yeah. So we now we re- now we try to keep normal hours. And uh, were you writing well those twenty four hours? Like when you were bu- bullet training, we were learning, the- and that yeah. is that you know that's crucial. So I think the raw talent was there, but it, it was like getting not in your so ten thousand hours exactly as quick as possible. Exactly, kind of it was not refined, and there wasn't that much perspective. I mean, one thing that happens when you put something down for the weekend and come back Monday morning is yeah. you know you start Monday morning saying you know I was thinking over the weekend, yep. and here you know this is what I think the problem is. If you're writing twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, you don't really have yep. that opportunity. I got a question. So you were coming up in the the late '80s through the '90s through the aughts. Um, you're talking about we we talked about writing for the studio and keeping keeping it in mind who's who you think would be making this film and making sure that if you're writing for Disney, you're writing a movie that Disney would actually make. Um, and you've mentioned that the scope of what studios are producing has been narrowing and narrowing, but I don't feel like that accounts for the like in the last five years we've seen this explosion in streaming sure and uh the the idea of writing for a studio if you were writing for a studio seven years ago and you were putting those those wacky ideas on the back burner you were underprepared for that kind of paradigm shift that streaming brought not you specifically but um how, how how has that played into your careers as screenwriters that now like everybody is producing everything constantly and I do agree that the major studios, the tentpole releases have gotten so myopic. Like there's just yeah. one film that comes out every week, 52 times a year, and that's it in the theaters. But the everything else is like, this is we are in the, the independent filmmakers golden era, I feel. 
Right. It feels kind of like the Wild West. It's yes. true, but it's also not true. Hit me. Well, I mean, if you look at... Disillusion my starry-eyed idealism. No, I think that having more platforms and more outlets for movies to be distributed is an excellent thing and a, a great opportunity for filmmakers. There's no question about it. Anyone who's making a movie and distributing a movie has to get attention for that movie. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if you look at a place like Netflix or a place like Amazon, uh, they're able to do certain niche things and, and mm-hmm. they do do those things, but they're also swinging for the fences. I mean, if you look at the oh, yeah, series, yeah, yeah. the premiere on Netflix and on Amazon and the movies they make, you know, they're looking for stars, just like studios used to be looking for stars. They're looking for big directors, yeah. just like studios look for big directors. So they're not in the charity business. I guess no, that's no, no, the no, point no, no. I, w- I want to make. I think yeah. it's important for people listening to understand that it's not uh, it's not a situation where you can just say, oh, we'll just do it at Netflix. They'll make anything. No, right? no I don't mean it like that. I just no. mean that there has been this this uh, that there there is a home for very, very wild, independent cinema. And it feels like a good home. Yeah. I'm not saying that everything gets made all the time. Sure. Always just that that um, the the scope of it. Like there's there's the the cinematic the the theater scope of of filmmaking which does feel more narrow than I've ever known it to be in my right. life, but that's not like the only playground we've got. We've got some new playgrounds that uh, I never imagined growing up. A hundred percent. I I agree. I think uh, you know ten years ago it looked p- pretty bleak in the feature world mm-hmm. uh, because um, the transition to studios making ten poles was was almost complete. And the transition away from um, independent film companies really being very active and uh, having foreign sales and things like that to support budgets was was coming to a close. I think it looked it looked bleak. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And in the last five years, it's completely changed because of streaming. It's great, and it's it's a lot of opportunity. I, you know, I think five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, I mean, we we had a lot of coffees with aspiring writers. Um, it's one of the things we've always tried to make ourselves available to do for friends of friends. And, uh, you know, even five years ago, I might have had a hard time saying to somebody who said to me, I want to be a feature writer to say, okay, there's a future there. Now I wouldn't hesitate. You know, I do think streaming has, has created a lot of opportunity for, for people that want to write movies. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's going to be a great thing. So can I jump in for a second and bring it back to Bulletproof? There's something else in here that I really liked, and that was um, that you guys agree to read, and but it's with the agreement that you stop whenever you want to stop reading, and you'll let them know where you stopped and why. I think uh, if if more readers framed their screenwriting in that way, as, the, as they're planning to pass it off to a reader, that this reader will stop as soon as it's not interesting. I, th- I just thought that was a really good way to frame it. Um, no question in there. Just a little bit of praise for y'all. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And no, th- thank you for making for clicking that 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 little turnkey moment in the in the book. Yeah, I mean the idea is you want to be generous with your time, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's important for people who are writing scripts to understand that uh, their readers have limited time. Yep. yep and yep. it's important to really be sure before you give someone a script to read, is this the one? Do I feel confident? Will they make it the whole way through? That's you don't want to lose the reader. 
as you're talking to the new generation of writers, what are the what are the what are the good habits that are surprising you, and what are the bad habits that you would like to inoculate them from immediately and forever? I, I think the the best habit that that baby writers, new writers have these days is everybody's a TV writer and a feature writer. You know, when when we were starting out, you kind of had to choose from the beginning. Yep. Um, and, uh, and these days I think people, first of all, you don't have to choose as much because I think there's a lot more crossover, but even more than that, I think people are under, people understand you go where the opportunity is and, and story is story. So, uh, yeah, there, there are different rules and, and there's, there's sort of different tonal things that need to be created for TV, for features, for streaming and so on. But, uh, you can be more of a generalist and I think that's a good trend. Um, you know, what are, what are baby writers? I think that they don't get is Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's, it's easier now. It's easier because you have all of these resources and, uh, you have contests, you have script reading services, you have all of these things that we never had coming up. You have the internet. And, um, I think there is no substitute for writing a great script and working as hard and and on as many scripts as you can before you get a great one. I think it's too easy now to send a script off to a contest or to um, uh, um, let it fly. Mm-hmm. And I think people need um, to learn a little bit more patience and uh, to really get it right first. Um, I know it's hard because, as we were saying it's so before, exciting. it's so exciting. It's so you put exciting. So much time and heart into those things. Yeah, you finally got your hundred ten pages. Yes. And you've you made your partner read it, and yes. they didn't think it was terrible. So that must mean it's fantastic. It's exciting. We had scripts that we knew not to expose to anybody, mm-hmm. uh, and we, we had sort of concentric good, circles. Good by your measurements, like that you enjoyed writing and enjoyed yes. reading. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Of course. We you know we, that we finished. Yeah. Um, but we had concentric circles of we knew we had we had people who were fr- really good friends who we could have read anything mm-hmm. uh, and there would be no there, there would be no downside to that. Then we had people who were, you know, sort of a little bit more connected who could maybe do something for us, but not, not you know, and, and we would know that you didn't go to that penetrate that inner circle until you had something that really was worthy of that because you didn't have a lot of shots. Yeah. Um, so I think that's sort of the difference now is, you know, our gun had many fewer bullets, so you really had to save it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's get to the, the actual book. So, well, let's, um, let's, let's blaze through the hits. So there was the whiz kid. Let's get us up through, I think we got about like 20 years before this book Uh, happened. That's true. Let's, let's fire through those. You want to do five and five for your hits? Yeah. For our hits. Let's see. Okay. What have you got? So, uh, whiz kid, we sell, um, on spec, um, for, for, for a good bit of money. And there's a, a, a blind script commitment in the deal. So it's really a two picture deal. So uh, the second script of that was a script called Guam Goes to the Moon, which actually ended up doing more for us than than maybe any script we've ever written, even though it's never gotten made. Mm-hmm. It became uh, sort of a noted script in Hollywood. It, it had had probably at least 10 or 15 director attachments, probably a half dozen actor attachments, many different producers involved. Uh, it had a development history that spanned over 20 years, which is really difficult. 
because it's hard to keep some uh, a studio or producer interested in something oh, no, over that long time. Like 15 directors is uh, that you guys didn't like have the stink on it at that point. Oh my God. When, when a thing gets a yeah. reputation of, of that's not 15 directors who want to do it. That's 15 directors who left the pro like in, yes, the, right. in the town. <laughs> yes. It, it was really, so the, so that script did a lot for I us. I really hadn't thought about it that way until just now. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, uh, we sold as a pitch, uh, family man in 1996, five or mm-hmm. six. And, uh, that was really, that script, obviously did the most for us because it was the first movie the studio movie that we got made it took five years to get made but once it did get made um it was our calling card and still is in in many ways and uh after that uh we had um evolution made that that was an assignment that that uh ivan reitman had a script that was a straight sci-fi script he said i want to do this as a comedy he gave it to us we wrote a draft of it as a comedy he said i want to do it very quickly that movie was in production and then um then there was sort of five years a series of of assignments and selling pitches and just uh, doing a little bit of uh tv development pilots Mm -hmm. things like that uh, and then we met uh, the producer, Andrew Pinay, who had just made Wedding Crashers. And um, we wrote a, we sold a pitch with him called Paternity Leave at New Line, which became a, another script that we really are proud of and, and love still. Um, didn't get made, but also uh, had a lot of traction and different director attachments and actor attachments to it. And that led actually uh, to the sale of Old Dogs also uh, with Andrew at Disney, which we made very quickly there Mm -hmm. uh, with John Travolta and Robin Williams, and then followed that very quickly with When in Rome also at Disney. Those were the next two movies that we made. And uh, had a very nice run there at Disney selling pitches and and making a couple movies. And... uh, and then, and then bulletproof. Ideas. And then, you know, it ultimately led to bullet, writing bulletproof. You guys might not be the ones to ask because I think you might have a stake in their well-being. But how do you feel about Disney owning everything at this point? <laughs> it's been terrible for us. <laughs> how so? What? Because they, they've done it uh, basically at the cost of the kinds of movies that that we write originals. Um but you know it's obviously been very good for them uh they're you know they they really around the time uh, you know maybe 10 15 years ago they became much more of a brand management company than they than they became than they were an original film company um and they bought the best brands mm-hmm. pixar uh lucasfilm uh, marvel um, and they they revamped their own animation division, and uh, that was really the leading edge of what was happening in the film business at the time. They've done it amazingly well. I mean, you can't argue with that kind of success that they've had. I wish they they still made movies like The Apple Dumpling Gang, but uh, they those don't. Those movies <laughs> now are, go- are are migrating to Disney Plus. That's part mm-hmm. of what they'll be doing on on their own streaming space which actually is great if they if they really do start making originals again and and putting them on their uh their streaming channel i think it'll be as you said it'll be sort of a renaissance for movies like that 
I think it's inevitable that they like the, the job now is just content creation. I don't think it's sustainable. I think we're getting to a point where there are as many content creators as there are audience members. That's a problem. And that's yeah. Yeah. Cause those audience members aren't ready to put out half a million dollars for no. each movie that no. they watch. But then I don't know. It's, it, it, it might require a little bit of a reframing of how we think of, of the, the whole industry because uh, when, for, for example, uh, Touchstone or Disney, or when, when they make a movie, the product is the movie. But when Netflix makes a movie, the the movie, I think of it as their uh, advertising budget. The product is the streaming service. The product isn't the movie. The movie right. is a promotional right. item to, to get selling people. subscriptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically a 90-minute ad for their service. So I think it is... I don't, I don't know how that will play out in the next five years, but we are going to have to think about budgets more as like, it's all promotional budget when you're making a film. Maybe that's, mm -hmm. that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at with these new, new paradigms. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're right. I think that, you know, ultimately they're going to realize that, um, they can sell the same amount of subscriptions with far, far fewer content uh, amount oh, of content. Yeah, yeah, so when yeah. they, when they realize that they'll, they'll just start making less, but you know, if Netflix has five other streaming services to compete with, they they won't be able to sustain the growth and they'll they'll likely contract. So oh yeah, there, there's definite guaranteed contraction coming yeah. for Netflix. Like there's yeah. no no way around that. No questions asked on that. Bulletproof. Bulletproof. So what we just did was we ran the whole interview when you guys were just getting started and we breezed over the Ivan Reitman stories, we skimmed past the Robin Williams stories and that's okay. Like, I really want to know about um, how you get your foot in the door and how you get your career up to speed. Those up to speed stories, like that's kind of, you, you, you got the brass ring already. Like right. they're in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. If you want to hear those <laughs> stories, you can't, you can't go further. You don't have to go further than Bulletproof to get them. How did this book initiate? Who, who, cooked this one up was this you know you see you it, it, no it's it started with us and actually uh it began with uh an interest we had in writing a memoir that was really focused on the friendship and the partnership and th that we had in mind that there would be uh lessons for aspiring screenwriters to glean from the personal and professional journey that we have shared over mm -hmm. decades together that was the idea. Um, at a certain point, uh, relatively early on in that process, we just got the idea to reach out to Michael Weezy Productions because they really are the premier publishers of filmmaking books. Um, and, uh, and to tell them what we were doing and see if they had any interest because we had, we had considered self-publishing, mm -hmm. uh, but we know ourselves and we know the effort that self-publishing takes and weren't 100% convinced that uh, we have it in us to go that route. And we reached out to Ken Lee, who we've come to know very well now at Michael Weezy, and we told him what we had in mind and this was actually its own bulletproof moment. Uh, his response to us was, uh, that sounds interesting. However, we find that we have the greatest success when we stay in our lane. And our lane is 
how-to books. Mm -hmm. So if you guys want to, if there's an angle on what you're doing that you think can fit into that framework, then we'd be very interested uh, and think about it and let us know. Um, so that was really, you know, sort of a, a metaphor of like the studio telling you their yep, brand yep, yep. and, you know. Everyone's job here is to say no. Yeah. Yeah. I Even mean, Ken he said wants, no. He wants to say yes, but, yeah, you but know. everybody wants to lean in. Everybody yeah. is looking for the next good pitch. Exactly. So, but I think what we, what we quickly realized when we, when we conceived of the idea for Bulletproof is the very thing that we were trying to communicate, uh, in, in writing about our friendship and our partnership, um, was also the thing we were trying to communicate in, in Bulletproof, which is, We've been doing something for 25 years uh, and we've been helping people uh, along the way who have asked us for help and um, and there's there's some insight and 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 we we wanted to share the insight and, and there was an opportunity for some economy of scale you know we have like over the years I don't know how many coffees we've had with people mm -hmm. who are trying to break into the business it's essentially the same conversation over and over yes. again. We're yes. happy to have it. Yeah. Uh, and we're really rooting for people to succeed and, you know, but, uh, but it is the conversations, our experience is our experience and we look at it how we look at it. And it just seemed to us, you know, we could write this all down in one place and it could be available to anybody. And uh, let's, let's do that. So, uh, and then, you know, there's the part of us that's still like, the journeyman Hollywood screenwriters who, you know, we see an open writing assignment that appeals to us and we go after it. Mm -hmm. And so when Ken said to us, you know, if there's an angle on this that you think would fit into the framework of what we do, we'd be very interested. You say that to a couple of Hollywood screenwriters, you know, we spend the next two yep. hours talking about, well, what's the angle it yep, fits into yep, the framework. Yep, 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 yep. And the truth is it, it took, it took five minutes. I mean, it was, we look at, we, we look at our process the way we look at it, that hasn't changed. And uh, and that moment at the fashion show mall in Vegas, how would Disney do it, mm -hmm. was really a turning point in our career. And building that out into, uh, into a book that you can call it a how-to book, we sort of see it as, it is a how-to book, but it's, from our perspective, more of a mentoring text. Yeah, like yeah, really yeah. taking a writer by the hand from the beginning to the end and walking them through the process and really trying to support the writer along the way and uh, keep them it's, excited it's about what they're like, doing. It's more like a how to think about it than it is a how to checklist, yeah. like Save the Cat or something like that. Correct. It's, it's more a holistic philosophical approach to writing than, I don't want to use the word practical because it makes it sound this, like this book is impractical, but, but it is more of a philo philosophical approach. Well, it's the, it's the how we do it and why do we do it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, how long did it take to write? It took the, I, I, it took the same amount of time it takes to write a script, and we really did it the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, we broke it down. We talked about what the structure of it was going to be in meticulous detail, uh, which anecdotes from our career we were going to share, what the point of those anecdotes was going to be. And we started writing, and I think we started writing it in December of 2017, and we finished it in the spring of 2018. Uh, is somebody more likely to get that coffee meeting with y'all if they say, I read your book and loved it? You know, we haven't really gotten there yet. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> how many people read the book? <laughs> how long has this been out? 
it just came out. It oh, just okay. came out awesome. May first. Yeah, yeah. Wait. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. Is this is this your first press appearance? Not a a very Uh, first, but close. Okay. Close close to our first. Yeah. Yeah, You know, the, um, the coffees that we've had with people tend to be friends of friends and nephews of friends Mm -hmm. and nieces of friends and so on and so forth. So, uh, there, there, there's, there's only two or three degrees of separation. We haven't had anybody request anything off of, off of the book. And, uh, and the truth is that there isn't much more we can offer besides what's Mm -hmm. in the book. Um, you know, I don't think that, uh, though it's a business based on relationships, what it's really based on is material and content. So uh, if you have a piece of material that is outstanding and uh, and extraordinary in some way, I think it'll 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 find uh, people to read it, um, especially these days where where there are lots of different points of access. Um, you know, the, the insight that we have is in the book. And, you know, we're happy to talk to people, but um, but we wrote the book because it, it 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 sums up very nicely sort of what our process is and, and as you say, the philosophy of it. So, um, you know, we don't pretend to, say, to think or to say, uh, if you follow every step of this book, you will be, you know, it is a road to success because it's not really that kind of book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you subscribe to the philosophy that we're talking about and that you you your interest is in entering this very collaborative business where you know content is created and um ultimately sold and and people get to see it you better know that it's collaborative from the beginning and yeah. that you know if you're not prepared to do that it's going to be a it's going to be a tough a, a tough road I can't think of it. That was like the perfect outro that that we could have for this episode. We couldn't have done Thank better. You. So I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it right there. I'm All gonna right. retire as the host. We're gonna press stop. We get a bathroom break, a little minute to collect ourselves, and then we're there gonna is. hit the ground running with episode two, where I give complete control over to y'all, and we'll see how that goes. I think it'll go beautifully. All right. Episode two will be short. Oh, <laughs> see you there, but not Thank very you. long there. <laughs> Spark-